Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 25. This will be our sermon text this morning. We'll read our New Testament lesson shortly uh, after this. Isaiah, chapter 25. It's a passage I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit these uh, past few months. It's a good passage. One that I feel ill-equipped for preaching this morning. But it is God's Word, and it is a treasure trove of rich delights. The good news is, if I uh, completely tank and fail, it gives me an excuse to come back to this text sooner than later. Isaiah chapter 25, uh, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of, uh, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And now, if you'll uh, keep a thumb here in this passage and turn with me to John chapter 2 for our New Testament reading. A passage that upon first glance might not have the most immediate connection, but hopefully one uh, that will be uh, readily seen, I hope, within the next half hour. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine till now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you, uh, having drawn our attention to your word, would give us ears to hear those uh, glorious things that your word says, and the promises that you have given to us through Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. One of my fondest memories as a kid was our family trips. We took nearly annually, it seems, going to Hanging Rock State Park in uh, western North Carolina. 
There's a picnic area is located in this uh, beautiful area atop the Smoky Mountains. Plenty of trails for short hikes. There is a, actually a, a lake that sits on top of one of the mountains where you could go fishing or swimming or a place to sit around and to read. My grandparents, uh, at those times that they were able to, would join us when they could. They lived only a, a few hours away. We'd go and we'd grill up hamburgers and hot dogs. We'd enjoy uh, the fresh mountain air beauty of God's creation and find rest and refreshment. Mountains can do that, but I think they also have a more practical purpose. They provide a place of, uh, of safety, a refuge. Mountains served as fortresses and strongholds. You read throughout the Psalms, we are told of the mountain of the living God being the fortress, the place to whom the saints could run as a place of safety and refuge in a time of distress and war. We recognize such metaphors even today in the language that we use to have the high ground means that yours is the advantage. One thing to notice here as we consider this one uh, passage in the middle of Isaiah is this, that Isaiah's prophecy, the whole book begins and ends on a mountain. In the opening of chapter 2, where he beckons the people to come and go up to the mountain of the Lord, the closing of its chapters where we find a remnant from among all nations ascending this heavenly mountain, Isaiah's book focuses on the mountain of the Lord. It provides for us a word picture, one this morning that we'll give attention to as we are given in vivid detail and imagery a prophetic snapshot of the eternal joy and the security that awaits the Lord's beloved on top of the mountain. I'd like us to consider three things this morning. First, that of the banquet. Secondly, that of the vow. And finally, our Redeemer. The banquet in verse 6 the vow you'll see in verses 7 and 8, and finally our Redeemer in verse 9. I think on the surface, Isaiah appears to be something of a frightening book. I think the, the closer you get to the center of the Bible, the, uh, the scarier it gets. You don't know what to do with these center portions of Scripture. But I think a careful reading will show that Isaiah's message is, in fact, quite simple, as large as the book may be. Isaiah's message concerns simply this, the arrival of the kingdom of God, and with it the arrival of the king of that kingdom. Almost right away in Isaiah's book, he identifies this king of all kings, that he being born of a virgin in chapter 7 would be clothed in the Spirit's power in chapter 9, that he might bear this ever-expanding heavenly government upon his shoulders, a kingdom that extends from sea to shining sea. In chapter 27, it is this king that slays the great dragon, the serpent, the devil, thus fulfilling the Lord's oldest promise to his people that the seed of the woman would vanquish the serpent once and for all, we are here in this book given a picture of the final climactic promise first given in the Garden of Eden. A garden which took place, according to Ezekiel, on top of a mountain. 
In the latter half of Isaiah, we find that Israel's king is in fact the Lord's beloved servant. He is the lamb who bears Israel's sins once and for all. He is the priest who offers up himself as that sacrifice, who lives forever to make intercession for the saints. He is the prophet who proclaims the glad tidings of liberty and comfort, who ushers in joy and who dispels gloom and sadness. And in the closing chapters of Isaiah, he is the king who comes in salvation for his people and judgment upon the wicked. So fascinating that in the book of Isaiah, you get your whole doctrine of Christ from his uh, pre-existence to his virgin birth to his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king to the redemption he secures by his death, his resurrection, his spirit-empowered ministry, and his return as king and judge. He is the prophet, priest, and king of this heavenly kingdom said to be God Himself, yet also a man. In the ancient world, grand banquets were said to take place on top of mountains. They signified the celebration, the coronation of divine kings. And here in our passage, we find that the remnants from among the nations have gathered to celebrate the coronation of the Lord Himself as King. It's fascinating when you compare the moment here with the moment that Israel experiences at Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, where the Lord descends and as the king, Exodus chapter 15, the Lord reigns forever and ever, having destroyed Pharaoh's army, he now descends to give as king the law to his subjects. Upon the giving of the law, he invites Moses and Aaron, and Aaron's two sons, and the 70 elders of Israel to come to the top of the mountain and to feast with him. But we find here that the banquet does not take place at Sinai. Now, heaven has come to earth, Zion, the dwelling place of God. And here we find in our passage this morning, it is not simply the top men of Israel who are summoned. Here a feast is prepared by the Lord himself made, as you see here in this passage, for all peoples. How inclusive is that? Not just Moses, not just for Aaron, for everyone, not just for Israel, but for all who come. It is a better covenant than the one that was promised at Sinai. And it is no mean cuisine. It is not just the salad bar. It is a feast full of rich food, full of marrow and the best wine around. One translator I looked at in a commentary this week said the best way to translate this is a festive banquet full of greasy food. This is the best there is to offer. You see those old movies, I'm thinking in particular of uh, this movie that I watched as a kid all the time called Red Dawn. A bunch of of high school students who have to flee because the Soviets have invaded the U.S. and started World War III and leave it to the high school quarterback and a ragtag bunch of his friends to try to declare war on the Russians. Well, the first half of the movie, they're, they're holed up in the mountains, basically trying to live off the land. It does not seem to be joyous living. Well, here we see the Lord's people on top of a mountain, but they're not living off of ramen and beef jerky. This is not a picture of of a people under attack, or at least a people worried. 
This is a grand festive banquet commemorating the coronation of the Messiah. It is the Messianic feast, the great celebration that the Lord is King over all. It is a treasure trove of rich delicacies given not just to Israel, but all the nations who come to this appointed place to bow the knee in service to the Lord and to His anointed. This is the fortress of the Messiah. Messianic banquet, a great feast given to all who flee to Him for refuge. Isaiah will describe in great detail later in chapter 55 what this feast signifies so that we don't have to scratch our heads and guess. Isaiah chapter 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Do you have no money? Well, no problem. Come and buy and eat. Without money, without price, rich wine, Great delicacies. It is a banquet that is freely given. Listen to me, Isaiah says. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. That same language that we see here. That your soul might live, for our God will abundantly pardon. Here this feast signifies the great promise of God to His people. The forgiveness of sins. It is that wine of the new covenant that signifies the very thing that the Messiah has procured by His death and resurrection from the dead. But we see here that the redeemed are not the only people who are feasting. It says here that the Lord Himself will devour as well. Where He will swallow up death once and for all, just as He has promised. You see that here in verses 7 and 8. It says actually twice here that He will devour death and the veil, that covering that is cast over all men. There is a dual image here when he speaks of the covering. Imagine uh, for this first image, the picture of the weeping veil. You go and attend a funeral. Who do you often tend to see sitting up front when an old uh, man or grandfather has died? You typically see his wife, now a widow, sitting with her face hidden behind a veil, weeping. It's not the veil of a bride in white on her wedding day where there is joy. Rather, it is a long black veil that she wears to hide her mourning. It reminds us that no one is immune from the reality of death. It is the great curse that has been levied against the whole human race on account of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that it was through Adam's first transgression that death secured its rule over all creation. Death now reigns. Death is the great arch-villain. He is the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians. He is the great enemy of the Most High and the people of God. His reign is vicious, tyrannical, and grisly. No one is spared. Even the most happy of marriages, the most secure of families, all end in tears because death has set up shop to terrorize Adam's helpless race. The covering here is more than a veil. It is that shroud. It is the word that marks one's grave clothes. You remember in John chapter 11, where Jesus comes and speaks and raises Lazarus from the dead. He comes out and Jesus has to command what? That his grave clothes be removed. That shroud be 
lifted. You know, when we have funerals here in the West, they, people are typically buried in their, their nicest suits or a, a beautiful dress. In the ancient world, it was a shroud, linens that covered one's whole body. That is the picture that is here where the Lord comes to remove the veil and the shroud. While the saints feast, commemorating the forgiveness of sins, the Lord Himself is said to feast as well, to feast and to swallow up death forever. Death here is personified in Hebrew. Literally, the Lord will engulf the death. You don't see that too often in the Old Testament. Death here is personified as a great villain who will be destroyed devoured so that Hosea the prophet would look at the same moment and say oh death where is thy sting through the work of the Lord's anointed king the curse of sin begins to unravel everything sad comes untrue such that when the anointed king arrives that Messiah that's what Messiah means is anointed one in Greek that word there is Christ That when he arrives, death will be dethroned, death will be devoured, death will be put to death. Because the Lord has spoken, because the Lord has promised, the Messiah is the great victor who is able to conquer the very thing that no other king could ever subjugate, death itself. Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world by the age of 33. Octavius Caesar, early 30s, conquers, brings the Roman Empire into subjugation to him, and yet both of them died. David himself brings together the nation under a throne. Solomon expands the borders, yet David and Solomon themselves die as well. Yet Christ comes, and though he is slain, He rises triumphant from the grave, giving death a foretaste of the very thing that awaits it on the day that Christ returns. So that it will be said on that day, the day of Christ's great return, when the Holy One of Israel is seated high on the throne, even as Isaiah foresaw in Isaiah chapter 6, where he said, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It'll be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and let us rejoice in His salvation. Of all the things that our King has won for His people, there is no benefit, there is no joy greater than this very thing. The sight of our Savior on the day of His appearing. It is the reason why we have the forgiveness of sins. That our sins are forgiven, that we might enjoy communion with God. This is the reason why we feast. This is why that the reason why death is removed and put to death, that we might live forevermore in an eternal friendship with the God and Redeemer and Creator of heaven and earth. Christ Himself says, John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, not simply the elongation of days. This is eternal life that they might know you. 
the one and true and living God, and your Son whom you have sent. Oh, the life that Christ offers is not simply an extension of days, but an abundant life that consists in a glorious feast found in the gospel that this King brings on top of His mountain. This is our God. We have waited for Him. Come thou long-expected Jesus to release us from our fears and our sins, the dear desire of every nation. We pray that You would now Thy gracious kingdom bring. It is the great promise of Scripture that the Holy God would dwell with man, that man would live to tell the tale and would rejoice. That when Christ, who is our life, appears, death will be undone and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That of all those benefits that are given to us on that great day, none will be so great as seeing our Savior face to face and feasting with Him at the great messianic banquet. One of my favorite hymns, I think, really sets this in focus. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze on glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown He gives, but on His pierced hands. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. What would heaven be without Christ? Here we see the very thing that Isaiah longs to look for. The thing that First Peter tells us all the prophets of old inquired into the timing and arrival of when this would take place. And so I think this passage leaves us with two very burning questions that we might understand what it is that Isaiah is seeing under inspiration of the Spirit. First question is this, when will this take place and where? First, we'll address the when. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, to 12, Peter tells us that when all the Old Testament prophets spoke, their prophecies centered on one major event, the suffering and glory of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Lord's King, who would establish this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom on earth. Now, of course, we live in between that period of Christ's two advents, his first coming, which we celebrate this time of the year, and of course, his return. But when you read the Old Testament, the prophets never saw these as two distinct events. Rather, they would describe it as a single arrival that now from our perspective comes in two distinct phases. Does that make sense? So that... For instance, in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah will speak of the Spirit descending upon the Messianic King signified at Christ's baptism that He might be the one empowered to slay the wicked, which will not happen until Christ's return. The Old Testament sees these two advents of Christ as one distinct arrival. Again, but from our perspective, it comes in two, it's one arrival in two distinct phases. How does Hebrews 1 begin? Uh, in former times, our, uh, the prophets and our fathers spoke in a variety of ways, or, or God spoke through the prophets to our fathers. But now in these last days, He has spoken to us concerning His Son, His Son who now reigns, who has taken the heavenly throne. Christ's resurrection, His ascension, was His coronation day. Now is uh, the, the day of the Lord, as it were, has begun. 
All things are now being made subject to Christ's rule and reign. Hebrews chapter 2, though we do not yet see it, though it does not look like reality, you can be the front headline to every newspaper every day from here to Christ's return. What's happening today? Well, all of Christ's enemies are being subjugated to his rule. That's how we describe everything that we see going on in the world around us because we're not simply, uh, we're, we're not awaiting for Christ to reign. Christ already reigns. We're awaiting the consummation of his reign when he finally appears and snuffs out the last of those guerrilla armies that are trying uh, to, to fight against something that has already been secured by the death and resurrection of our Savior. Isaiah sees here, collapsed into a single event, the day of the Lord. A day that has begun with the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Christ's resurrection marked the end of death's power so that we can say with the rest of the saints, O death, where is your sting? And when Christ returns, it will mark the end of death's presence where death will be swallowed up in sweet, sweet victory. So now we are already given a foretaste of the end of all things. On the night that Christ was betrayed, He took bread and a cup, and He said, this cup of the new covenant in My blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. That is what the cup signifies, that we now get to come and partake of that glorious, glorious banquet feast of which Isaiah has signified. For Christ beckons us to come and drink freely all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The great messianic banquet has begun such as was Christ's first sign wrought in His ministry. Have you ever thought why Jesus' first sign, His first miracle was wine at a wedding? John says this was the first sign Jesus gave because it signified the beginning of the messianic banquet has come. An overflow of the best wine. The appetizer before the entree to the messianic feast has begun and we get to partake of it every Lord's Day in the Supper. Every time we hear of the Gospel, we are given a foretaste of heaven where we are reminded of the forgiveness of sins. A feast full of marrow and rich wine. So that the day that death comes knocking for each of us, if that happens before the day of Christ's return, we do mourn the death of loved ones, but we do not mourn as those without hope because death's sting has been broken. That when we hear Christ's Word proclaimed, the Spirit gives us the eyes of faith to see Christ now. To work in us a deeper longing and expectation for that great day when our faith will turn to sight. So that we with the saints can together say, this is our God, we have waited for Him. This is the Lord, we have waited for Him. Let us be glad, let us rejoice in salvation. So that is the when. Christ has come. We're simply awaiting the consummation of all things. But it is the beginning of the end. The question, though, of course, is where? That's our second question. If uh, Christ uh, uh, has already gone, uh, if His kingdom has already been inaugurated, where is Zion to be found? 
Here, Isaiah has this picture, even in chapter 2 and chapter 4, this picture that all the nations will ascend the hill of Zion. And that will be the case in the last days. Where is that to be found? Are we to take this and say, okay, well, all of us every Saturday morning need to hop a plane and fly to Israel uh, so that we might ascend uh, the hill of Jerusalem every Lord's Day on Sunday? Is that the, the application? Is that the very thing that Isaiah is envisioning? Are we supposed to make it to Sunday service in Jerusalem? That's not the point that Isaiah has here. What we see here and elsewhere in the prophets is that Zion is found in the church. The visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth is found in the church. So that where the churches are, as the church is scattered among all the nations, now all the nations are able to go up every Sunday, every Lord's Day, saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Do you remember the, the call to worship we heard this morning? It's the very thing we heard, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he might teach us his ways, for the law will come forth from Zion. Daniel, in his vision, if you recall, when, when David preached through Daniel a few months ago, Daniel chapters 2 and chapter 7, sees the very same thing. The picture of the mountain of the Lord is established on the earth, but what happens to that mountain in Daniel's vision? It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until that mountain covers the face of the whole earth. Is that not a picture of Christ's kingdom operating through his church? So that here, when we come, we assemble not simply the four walls of Westminster Presbyterian Church, It's not simply a physical location. The church is, as it were, a portal to heaven. So Hebrews 12 describes it. For you, not, you have not come to something that can be touched, as Israel had come to Sinai, that mountain. No, rather, you have come where? You have come to Mount Zion, the same mountain here of Isaiah chapter 25 the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven into God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant, where a glorious feast of his great gospel is spread before us week after week after week after week, and it is just the appetizer. Because the big meal's coming on the day of His return. As we assemble together every Lord's Day, we are given a foretaste of the final day. And Christ beckons to all who would listen to come. This is a feast made for all peoples, to anyone who would turn and bow the knee to the Lord's anointed, to come and taste and see that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is good. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You uh, that we have been made participants in this great kingdom. We pray that You would give us the eyes of faith to see the great treasure trove, the riches that are found uh, through faith in Christ. Uh, teach us to feast on Christ by faith that we might see Him with our very eyes on the day of His great appearing. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.